A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, Namihi Nui, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. New Zealand, as we well know, is an earthquake-prone country. In terms of major quakes, in the last decade alone, we've experienced the 2011 Christchurch earthquake sequence and the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake sequence. There was widespread damage to buildings, resulting in injury and loss of life. And as a result, there have been changes to the building code to improve building safety. As part of this, the Building Earthquake-Prone Buildings Amendment Act of 2016 introduced major changes to the way existing earthquake-prone buildings are now identified and managed. Multi-storey buildings have been rated on how earthquake-prone they are, and the owners have been given a time frame in which to bring them up to a new building code standard. This has significant implications, for example, for multi-owner apartment buildings in Wellington, where the owners say they face strengthening bills that may cost many hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this at a time when we realise that more high-density housing will be needed to help solve the housing crisis. RNZ's Charlie Drever decided to investigate some of the issues around apartments and earthquakes. Kia ora. Core Charlie Drever DNA, and this is a special edition of Our Changing World, thanks to funding through the Aotearoa Science Journalism Fund. Living the high life on shaky ground. In recent years, many New Zealanders have become frighteningly acquainted with large earthquakes. But for B. Dwyer, who was 13 storeys high in Wellington when the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake hit, that was especially terrifying. My classic Wellington sort of thought, I'll just wait this out a little bit, I'm sure it'll peter off. And then I started hearing things smashing in the, in the kitchen and heard the, the steel beams in the, in the building sort of, not, not rupturing, but uh, making a heck of, heck of a lot of noise. And I thought, oh... This was pretty bad. And I could hear that you know, it was a TV smashing and my bookcase coming down. Microwave got thrown out of the wall. And I looked at the doorway in, in my bedroom and was like, oh, maybe I should get into the doorway. And then the slats in my bed fell out. And I was like, oh, I don't think there's much point getting in the doorway because I think the building's going to go over. So it sounds dramatic, but it really did feel like that. Um, so I thought, oh, no, this is literally how I'm, how I'm going to die. This is, this is no good. So um, I just kind of sat there and waited for the building to go, and thankfully it, it didn't. Bede rang his flatmate to pick him up from their apartment and then returned the next day for a clean-up. For the first week at least, I would have been the only person I saw in that whole building, and there were about 360 or so apartments. And so I was walking through the... The hallways and people's front doors were wide open, a jar on, their lights were on and lots of things, but it was just like an abandoned building. It was pretty spooky. 
yeah, especially when the aftershocks were going and the building was you know still swaying, it felt yeah, it was pretty pretty freaky. Yeah. Did you stay for your whole tenancy after that, or were you? Did you just try and get out as quickly as you could? I was on a rollover, um, but I. It, it wasn't straight away. I think it might have been about three or so months after the after the quake. Uh, there was probably quite a lot of competition for places, especially houses that weren't thirteen stories up. But uh, it's funny because people on you know floors one, two, and three or so. I know people who slept straight through that earthquake, you know, and so many of my friends and I talked about it, like, oh, it's so dramatic. Like, it wasn't even that bad. Um, and I understand what they're saying, but it definitely was on the 13th floor. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. So how has this changed your perception of apartment living or would you ever want to live in an apartment again after this? Maybe to a certain, a certain level. I'm not that keen on apartments anymore, I must say, especially in Wellington. For apartment owners looking to repair any damage, EQC's Head of Claims, David Ash, says apartment buildings add an extra layer of complexity. Look, apartment owners, normally that's going to be in a body corporate structure. Um, What they need to understand is that under a body corporate, there is one claim with EQC or, or the insurer. So there's one insured, which is the body corporate itself, and they're all part of that. So they need to understand with the body corporate what their share of it is, what their entitlements are, because a lot of the issues sort of happen afterwards when the money's paid from the insurer and EQC to then work out how the individual homeowners get the money. There's other complications, obviously, with apartments themselves, um, such as um, they're often difficult to get everyone together, so even when we're doing the assessments, it can be difficult to coordinate that. Um, We've had experience where we've had a um, student accommodation, for example, 100 different individual units. Trying to coordinate the assessment of those 100 units was was quite difficult and had to be done over multiple days. So there's all sorts of things that are more complicated than just your standard sort of quarter acre, you know, section with a single dwelling on it. It could be enough to put people off apartment living, but with New Zealand cities and house prices continuing to soar, there may be little other option but to increase the amount of high-density housing in our cities. A recent report of the five Wellington Regional Councils showed that between 2017 and 2047, the population of Wellington City is expected to increase by between 46 to 74,000 residents. Wellington City Council's Chief Resilience Officer, Mike Mendonca, tells me juggling a city at risk of a large earthquake and a growing population is a major challenge. We know we're going to grow, whether we like it or not. These people are going to come and want to live, work and play with us in this great city. We know we have earthquakes. Um, What that means is we need to make trade-offs and it means that we need to understand what the risks are and do better to mitigate those risks when people come to live in our city. So what does that look like? Um, I think we need to be quite careful to separate out a couple of things. One is, um, as we build new buildings, it's actually quite easy. Already in Wellington, we're seeing that developers who want to build new buildings are sensitive to what people's requirements are. We're already seeing the first apartment building in Wellington that is base isolated is underway. Increasingly, that's what the market's expecting. We're really happy about that. Most of the new buildings in Wellington are base isolated or have dampers or other earthquake mitigation measures. Really happy to see the market moving in that direction. 
Um, the other part in our real challenge is retrofitting existing buildings. So that's a much tougher gig. It's much uh, more expensive and it's quite stressful on the people who own or occupy those buildings. So I think it's important to separate out new stuff where we know what's going on, we know the science, we know what's available technically from the old stuff, which is much harder for us. And, and of course, um, a lot of people are, are feeling the pinch right now with who, who happen to live or um, work in those buildings. So would you say that's our biggest ch- challenge at the moment is you know retrofitting those pre-existing apartment blocks? Yeah, of course. And, and, and over a century, we'll probably replace all of our building stock in Wellington, you know, but the fact is that um, you're, you and I will both be dead in 100 years. So so it's all about balancing risk. Um, if, if we had a magic wand, we would change everything tomorrow, but um, life isn't like that. We can't. So we have to do what's practical, and that's what we're trying to do at the moment. And how much work is needed in the space to, to make those current buildings safe or resilient, should I say? Yeah, we prefer not to use the word safe because there are no guarantees, but um, it's about managing the risk of those buildings. We've assessed about 5,000 buildings in Wellington to determine whether or not they would meet the threshold for being potentially earthquake-prone. We found 1,000 buildings that are indeed earthquake-prone. Some 400 of those have already been addressed or demolished. There are another 600 that we have concerns with. So we're currently talking to the owners of those buildings. They have some choices, some decisions to make. Some of those will be tough decisions and tough tough choices. So that's where we're up to at the moment. Um, between the next two to 15 years, all of those 600 buildings have to be addressed. So uh, we're in the process now of working up an advisory service. The government's looking at this as well to see how we can help those building owners to, to make their buildings less vulnerable. Because at the end of the day, the owners want to feel less vulnerable in their buildings. People who work, live and play around those buildings want to feel less vulnerable, and we want a less vulnerable city. So we're all on the same page strategically, but I guess the rubber hits the road when we have to figure out who has to pay for the work and how, indeed, some of these owners are going to pay for the work. So those are the tough things that we're discussing with owners and with the government at the moment. At the coalface of this conundrum are the engineers, who are having to evaluate those pre-existing buildings and find new low-cost solutions to strengthening while maintaining the functionality of the building. To find out what work is happening in this field, I visited the University of Canterbury's engineering department. Inside their newest of the two structural engineering laboratories was a large precast concrete structure. There, I spoke to the Director of Studies for Earthquake Engineering, Associate Professor Tim Sullivan, about what projects they have underway. We're currently doing research into the performance of non-structural elements from partition walls, glazing, uh, ceilings and sprinkler systems which will affect how usable the building is after an earthquake and how much it will cost to repair. And we're also doing research into the performance of structural elements and the development of new structural elements uh, or systems that lead to lower damage in rear earthquakes. Uh, We are also looking at retrofit of existing sorts of structural systems, so what what are the effective or cost-effective ways we can intervene to reduce the risk of damage and and life safety risks in earthquakes. And in terms of that retrofitting, so what kind of buildings are we looking at modifying to make them safer in those sorts of events? Uh, Well, that can be dependent on the... um, on the building at hand. So we have a process in New Zealand to assess 
the, the life safety risk of buildings. And if the building comes up with a, what we call a low percentage NBS or new building standard, then we have to develop a retrofit option. What we are currently working on here is uh, retrofit ideas for buildings with precast uh, floor systems that can be, depending on their, their connection detailing and, and how they've been um, constructed, are quite vulnerable in what system they're in. So uh, we're, we're working on these reinforced concrete building systems to try and ensure that uh, in, in a large rear earthquake those floors don't fall down, basically. One of the issues with the precast flooring is that as the building deforms, the precast is quite a brittle element. So uh, if the deformations, particularly at the ends of the units where the, 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 be- the units sit on top of the, the beams and, and possibly onto other sort of support conditions, we're trying to make sure that the deformations imposed on the units um, can be accommodated. And that means we could have either a catch frame system, which is some sort of angles that, uh, or some sort of structural system that is put in below the floor system so that if the units do get broken and, and start to fall, they're actually caught um, by something else. Or adding reinforcing or modifying the connection details so that the units themselves can undergo bigger displacements. So that if you get more displacement capacity into a building, you can sustain a more intense earthquake. It's kind of like a built-in safety net, really. That's right. The, the, the traditional sort of retrofit system for these things is a sort of like a safety net, a, a small one under each floor. So you would actually have to go in and put it under every floor that you thought had a risk of, of falling. In the other lab, the testing on non-structural elements are taking place. On the university shake table, which recreates the movements of an earthquake, is a sprinkler system. It's the project of PhD candidate Mohammed Rashid. One of the things about sprinkler systems is that we don't have any data on these uh, experimental data, especially in New Zealand. We are not aware of any testing that has taken place on these systems, so this is probably the first time. So uh, we are testing these sprinkler systems to different levels of acceleration and then we will see the performance of these, uh, these systems at different shaking levels. We did start with the survey, we started with the Christchurch Hospital, we had a look at the sprinkler systems already installed over there. Uh, we had a look at a couple of apartment buildings in Auckland, uh, another hospital and uh, a mall here in uh, Christchurch. So we tried to bring all those features into one system or change the features within one system so that we can cover every type of sprinkler system and uh, come up with a comprehensive set of results. I spoke with the Professor of Structural and Earthquake Engineering, Rajesh Dakel, who stressed the importance of testing each individual component. Because when we test the whole building at the beginning and if something doesn't go well, actually it will be very difficult to pinpoint what is the cause of, of the failure or what, what didn't work because there are interactions between different components, right? So that's uh, important. Uh, that's why it is important for us to actually start from the component level. First, understand the behavior of the component and then put the component in a system and then test the system. So system performance, like a building level performance, will, will happen later, actually. 
actually you might be uh, interested to know that actually we are testing a full building, three-story building uh, made of steel frames with all these things like you'll have the cladding panels, you'll have glass windows, you'll have pipings, you'll have ceilings, partition walls in China actually because there is a huge consortium going on led by University of Canterbury uh, and in, uh, in March, April next year there will be a big test on a bigger, much bigger uh, lab, uh, the full building system. But here we are a smaller lab and actually we are focusing on actually uh, the component level performance. So we are testing different components in different types of loadings uh, and see how the component behaves. Is the component itself okay? And if it is okay, then we go to the next step saying that when we put two components, like for example here, in addition to the pipes, if we also put ceilings, how do they interact? In addition to the ceiling, if we also put partition walls, how do they interact? You can go to that level of interaction at a time. Right? He says the expectations for a building's performance in a quake has changed. And we, we now know that uh, if things are done according to the modern code, we can more or less assure life safety. But still, people are not happy. Because, uh, you know, like engineers are saying, hey, look, because we all our modern buildings uh, did well, right? But the public is saying... Really? Because have you guys uh, done well? Because we have, you know, like uh, we have been, uh, we have been forced to bear about forty billion dollars of loss in, in in the last Canterbury earthquake sequence. That is huge money. So how how does the country as a whole, you know, like sustain that or come back? You know, like uh, so can that be avoided? That's the question being asked. And and we uh, designers, engineers, researchers will have to respond to that. You know, like take the, take that challenge of uh, increased public expectations and and do the things in a different way. It's not just with buildings that expectations are changing, but the land underneath them too. I rang Professor of Geotechnical Engineering at the University of Auckland, Michael Pender, who told me that land plays a significant role in how a building performs during an earthquake. As we discovered in Christchurch, because there were buildings of all sizes there, from houses up to very substantial multi-storey buildings, that found themselves on ground that wanted to liquefy and the um, performance wasn't uh, at all good. What lessons have been learnt from that then, what we've seen in, in the likes of Christchurch? Well, the most, from a geotechnical point of view, the most obvious lesson is one needs to investigate the ground reasonably thoroughly before you build anything. Now, you can forgive the people who were building houses in the 50s and 60s into the early 70s, but our knowledge of problematic uh, soil deposits um, with regard to liquefaction is um, advanced considerably in the last uh, several decades. And so it wouldn't have taken a great deal of uh, site investigation to have made people realise that the... Uh, the part of Christchurch around Bexley and Burwood wasn't suitable for the type of development that had been embarked upon. But it's not impossible to build on that land. Well, now that um, we understand these problems a bit better, it's certainly possible to build on the uh, ground in Christchurch um, and uh, do it properly. It's just a matter of how much it will cost. And so that red zone area in Christchurch has just been a blanket no-no as far as residential development goes. And it's not just land. 
cost is becoming a major barrier to get pre-existing buildings up to the latest strengthening standards as well. For apartment owner Leslie Hamilton, who lives on Wellington's busy Cuba Street, she is facing a hefty bill to get her apartment up to the new standards. We've been told that um, despite buying it, um, when it was above code, above 33%, um, we've told that Kaikoura moved the goalposts and it needs to be re-strengthened. Uh, we've been told that the assessment we originally got was over two years ago, it might be close to three, um, that the cost would be around $6 million. Probably these days, we're waiting, we're in the middle of doing the detailed seismic assessment, um, so we don't have the final cost, but um, I'm expecting that to move up by a million or two. Uh, my personal share of this for this 100 square metres is uh, around a quarter of a million. And what sort of impact does that have on you, knowing that you've got this cost that is eventually going to have to be met? Well, it's devastating. It's, 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 my, it's my retirement. Um, so what we have is me the, the difference between me being mortgage-free and being able to um, sell the apartment and, and have a good retirement to the reality of me having to go to the bank and, and hoping that the bank's going to give me another quarter of a million dollars, less than a decade of retirement, to, um, to strengthen this. But I, I just don't see how I have, have any choice. So I can either fire sale um, and take a quarter of a million off what the apartment is worth, or I can suck it up, um, go to the bank, pay the money, and... Hopefully, which is what they tell us, the, um, the amount that you spend on it will be added to the value of the apartment after you're finished with it. But um, that's the only choice. It's rock and hard place. Leslie Hamilton says others who simply don't have the equity to borrow enough money to earthquake strengthen will have no other choice but to sell their apartments at a much lower cost, putting many people in financial hardship. She says there needs to be more help for owners and fast. They changed the rules. They need to make it easier. They need to help us out. We bought in good faith. They changed the rules. They need to give us more help. That burden is something councils and the government are now trying to address. Local Wellington Central MP Grant Robertson gave me an update on the $23 million fund that's being developed. What we know is that for some people, uh, actually those those costs of you know around two hundred thousand dollars would break the bank for them, and they don't have the ability to do it. Uh, it's not a fund to fund everybody. It's a fund to fund people who who just can't bring the finance together, or where it would put them under undue hardship. Uh, that fund is being organised as we speak, and we're very hopeful that by the end of the year we can begin taking applications for it. And how many people are you expecting to take up that fund? That's a really good question, and it's very difficult to say. I mean, obviously, we know that even within just the Wellington area, you know, we've got a couple of hundred buildings where this kind of work's underway. Uh, what we don't know is the individual financial circumstances of each person in each building. So we'll we'll play that by ear as we go through, but the, the funding is available there to be able to support people to get this work done. So that's going to be available at the end of the year. So we're really hopeful we'll have the application process open by the end of the year. We may not be able to actually hand out money until early next year. Uh, it's taken a bit of organising. The government hasn't done a scheme like this before, so we've had to you know, design it properly and find the right agency to deliver it. But we're pretty close now uh, to be able to get it going. 
Do you think it might need topping up as, as it goes on? Because, you know, 23 million, it sounds like a lot, but if people have got a quarter of a million dollars worth of work to do, <laughs> it soon dwindles away. It does. And so we clearly have said that we'll review the scheme um, as we go, um, but this is the start. However, with only some people being eligible, mixed with the uncertainty of when the next big seismic event will occur, other solutions will be needed to ensure the resilience of our cities and homes. Thanks, Charlie. And thanks too to everyone who featured in that story, which was produced by RNZ reporter Charlie Drever. It was made with support from the Aotearoa New Zealand Science Journalism Fund. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, it's time for some chemistry with Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and the Elemental podcast. Tonight's element is vanadium. This is an intriguing tale of Model T Fords, big batteries and sea squirts. Uh, Alison, before you get too excited about a bit of biology, let's start with some chemistry. Okay. <laughs> so the elemental symbol V, the atomic number 23, and that makes it a transition metal, indeed a first row transition metal, sort of up there to the top left-ish of those metals. Now, vanadium is possibly the only element on the periodic table to have been discovered twice. Mm-hmm. So let me explain. So back in the year 1801, the Mexican mineralogist Andres Manuel del Rio discovered vanadium compounds in samples taken from a Mexican mine. So he was busy studying these. He thought these are pretty cool. They were multicolored compounds. And that was his problem, because compounds of chromium are also multicolored. So Del Rio thought that he had a new element. So just to check, he gave these compounds to a French visitor. The French visitor forwarded them to Paris. They got analysed over there, and sadly, erroneously, as it later turned out, they said that they were chromium compounds. So poor old Del Rio thought he was onto something and got told that he wasn't. And then in 1830, the element was rediscovered in Sweden, again, by Nils Gabriel Sefström. And he found that cast iron made from iron ore mined in a particular part of Sweden varied in its strength. And he isolated a minor component of the cast iron and he identified it as a new element, which he then called vanadium. And yet another chemist, Friedrich Wöhler, showed that this was in fact identical to Del Rio's supposed chromium. So who actually gets the credit then, the uh, Mexican or the Swede? In the reference books I looked at, Del Rio actually does get his due, which is good to see. Well, nice to see Mexico get a mention. (laughs) Now, so we finally agreed it was an element in its own right, and Mm -hmm. then what did we start doing with it? (laughs) As with many metals, we alloyed it, and it was found that vanadium makes steel both stronger and lighter, and so that's going to be good. So this led to vanadium's widespread use in the gears and axles and crankshafts and indeed the chassis of the Model T Ford. Oh, nice. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And nowadays around about 85% of all the vanadium produced does in fact go into steel, And that gets used in armour plating, uh, jet engines, and the usual sorts of applications that require strength coupled with lightness. Has it got any particularly useful chemical features? Vanadium is one of those few elements, in fact, that can exist in quite a variety of oxidation states, ranging generally from 0 to 5+. 
And this ability makes the element absolutely ideal for use in flow batteries. Flow batteries, which are what exactly? (laughs) These are batteries that are composed of basically two giant vats of solutions which contain different electrolytes. Now, these solutions can be brought into contact through a semi-permeable membrane and electric current flows as a result of this. And recharging the battery can be as simple as using solar power to do this. So what we find generally in these flow batteries is that two very different electrolytes are used. So, for example, there's one flow battery based on zinc species and bromine species, for example. But because vanadium can exist in such a large number of oxidation states, vanadium flow batteries require only two different vanadium species to operate. And uh, in fact, the largest battery in the world is a vanadium flow battery, and it's being constructed in China for use next year, 2020. And the battery will store 800 megawatt hours of energy. Wow, (laughs) that's a a mega battery, Mm. a bit more than I need for my torch. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, just just a little. Um, In fact, uh, that's going to be enough to power thousands of homes. So these are more batteries of the future than of the here or now, and they could be the answer for storing large amounts of energy from renewable energy sources as a way of evening out power supply from, well, lumpy, for want of a better word, sources such as wind or solar. And another interesting chemistry fact about vanadium, for those of you who did school cert science back in the day, you'll probably all have heard the fact that vanadium pentoxide is the catalyst used in the manufacture of the most produced chemical on the planet, sulfuric acid. Which I think we may have mentioned said acid in the sulphur episode. I bet, yes. Now, I'm on the edge of my seat about those sea squirts. And can I explain what they are? So they're no, marine, go ahead. marine invertebrates that are also known as ascidians, and you generally find them tucked on a rock or something, and no prizes for guessing why they're called sea squirts, because when you poke them, you know the rest. So what have vanadium and sea squirts got in common then? Well, in previous episodes of Elemental, we've talked about the iron and the copper species that are used to carry oxygen in the blood of various species. Well, um, sea squirts have very high levels of vanadium in their blood, and their blood is also very, very acidic. They even have a special type of blood cell known as vanadocytes, and they are somehow able to accumulate relatively large amounts of vanadium out of the tiny concentrations you find in seawater. And in fact, one species looked at apparently had 10 million times the background concentration. Wow. Thanks, Alan. And that was Alan Blackman from the Elemental Podcast. And that's the show. You can listen to tonight's stories again at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, or on your favourite podcast app. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. 
That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 